Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During January, we're doing a sermon series called Crossover. We're going to focus on the places where different religious traditions align in terms of their beliefs with Christianity. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today comes from 1 Kings, the eighth chapter, assorted verses. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral houses of the Israelites, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. All the people of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the festival in the month Ithanim, which is the seventh month. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The day of Pentecost had come... They were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And this sound, at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. So we've been doing a sermon series. Do you all remember what it's called? Crossover. Crossover. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Crossover. Uh, It's a five-week series. It starts uh, at the beginning of the new year. We're four weeks in, so really we got one week left, and then we'll put this one in the books, and we'll move on. What this series is about is we're looking at other religious traditions, and we're looking at how they cross over and intersect with Christianity. The idea behind this series is not to say that all religions are the same, because they're not all the same. The idea is to talk about how religions have parallel paths of interest, where they're trying to achieve the same ends often by different means. Last week we talked about how Christianity overlaps with Confucianism. This week we're going to be talking about the overlap between Islam and Christianity. So to begin this, I would like to start by talking about where 
the birthplace of Islam comes from, which, of course, is in Mecca. Mecca is located in Saudi Arabia. And if we were to go, it's the whole church, we'd get on a plane, fly over there, and we walked into Mecca, probably the most important place that you could go is to where the Kaaba is located. The Kaaba is this big cube. And Kaaba in Arabic simply means cube or square. It's not a kebab. We don't want to get that confused, right? So it's a Kaaba. And it is at the center of the holiest mosque in all of Islam. Now, if you are familiar with the Hajj, that's the pilgrimage that Muslims will take to Mecca once in their lifetime, when they get there, it's very important that they go and see the kebab. Now, if you've ever seen photos or video of this, what it looks like is that they begin encircling the kebab. So this is video of it, and all those little white dots you see down there are actually people. So they are encircling the Kaaba, and they work their way inward towards it so that they can eventually touch it. They want to put their hands on it. And many of them work towards the eastern corner of the Kaaba because there is a black stone, and that black stone, it actually is a stone that is said to have been kissed by Muhammad, and many of them will kiss that stone. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? This is from a movie called Samsara, and that is when they speed up all the people swirling around it. It's a remarkable movie, by the way, if you want to go watch it. It's not just about Islam. It's about a lot of other things, but that's one of the places that they go is to Mecca. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take some time to tell you about the history of the Kaaba. I want to tell you a little bit about where it comes from, what it was all about, its importance to Islam. And by doing that, you're going to understand how Jesus and the prophet Muhammad are connected to each other. So are we ready for this? Yes. All right. Okay. So the Kaaba was actually a structure that was there long before Islam was ever established. It's been in Mecca for a long time. Now, according to the Quran, what it states is that the Kaaba was originally constructed by Abraham and his son Ishmael. They built it together. And that black stone I talked about, that some of the pilgrims will go and kiss on the corner of the Kaaba, that is said to be part of the original structure of it that, they, that Abraham and Ishmael built. Now that, of course, is what we say is a sacred story. That's part of their tradition. That's not necessarily history, and I know I have to go and ruin everything with a little bit of history, but I'll tell you about what the actual history is, which I think is far more fascinating. So the Kaaba originally was a temple or a sanctuary, and it contained idols to all the various gods that were worshipped on the Arabian Peninsula. So if we could go back in time and go to the Kaaba before Islam had been established, if you walked inside, what you would find is that there were idols of 360 different gods. So there were images and holy artifacts. So if we went inside, we would actually see a picture of Jesus. Jesus was actually in the Kaaba, as were other holy artifacts. So supposedly they had artifacts that were from Adam. Adam, of course, being the first man in the Bible. Uh, they have it from Noah, who built the ark. They have it from Abraham, who established the Jewish faith. They have it from Moses and Aaron, who, you know, supposedly walked the people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So they had all of these items in that sanctuary. And so if you were a person on the Arabian Peninsula and you worship God, your God was there. It was universal. 
You could go in and you could find your God no matter what. And this universality was actually quite clever because what happened over time is that as the Kaaba grew and it started to gather more artifacts, people said, well, if you really want to worship your God, you got to go to Mecca and worship at the Kaaba. Now, the group, the tribe that owned the Kaaba and really ruled over Mecca was a very powerful and wealthy tribe known as the Al-Allah. That's the tribe of God and they were known as the wardens of the sanctuary. So what would happen is, let's say you were a pilgrim, you're going to Mecca to worship your God, you get into Mecca, you're going to have to pay a fee or a toll to the Al-Allah to get inside the sanctuary to be able to worship your God. And as Mecca became kind of this central point around which a lot of people were worshiping their gods, a whole industry cropped up to serve these pilgrims. So imagine you're a pilgrim, you're coming in, you've traveled a long way. Well, all of these merchants started coming there to sell you goods so that you would have things to buy when you were there. And it was great for them. It was this place of immense economic activity because Mecca was a neutral zone. If you came to Mecca and you had beef with another tribe, you couldn't fight that tribe there because ultimately, if you did, you would get kicked out and you couldn't worship your God, which is, of course, what they wanted to do. So these merchants would come there and they would sell these goods from all over the world and they loved it because they were safe. Their items wouldn't get pilfered by anybody. Now, of course, the ability to be able to sell all of these goods came at a little bit of a price tag, right? You had to pay a fee or a tax to the Al-Allah, the tribe of God. So if you were in and around Mecca, that safety came at a bit of a price. So you'd pay them the tax, which of course made them wealthier and more powerful. You with me so far? Okay. Now, this, I tell you all this because I want you to understand these are the circumstances surrounding Mecca around the time that the prophet Muhammad is born, around 570 AD. And he grows up watching as religion in the Arabian Peninsula is really controlled by this one family. This one family kind of controls it all, and he doesn't like that very much. He doesn't like the idea that, you know, if you're poor, which he was, and you want to go worship your God, you got to travel all the way to Mecca, which is expensive, and then you got to pay the toll to this family, this tribe, to get inside the sanctuary to worship. And so when he begins his movement, one of the inspirations behind it was trying to break down those barriers in making the worship of God accessible to everyone. So when he has his first revelation in 609 AD, and that's when he gets this revelation from the angel Gabriel, a core part of that revelation is that he wants everyone to know that they can worship God wherever, and that he tries to reform the Kaaba. This is a big part of it. He wants to reform the Kaaba. So, and the way he does this, by the way, is just absolutely ingenious. So what he does is he travels to Mecca during the pilgrimages, and he gets in there and he stands up, like I'm doing right here, and he starts preaching at the people. And what he tells them as they come into Mecca is he says, look, I know you're going to worship your God at the Kaaba, but here's the thing. You don't need all those gods. You just need to focus on the one God, Allah. Now that word Allah, what it means is the God. That's actually the translation of it. And Allah is the ancient rain sky deity that was worshiped there on the Arabian Peninsula. It's a very old God. Now if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard me talk about how the Jewish people, they originally worshiped a God named El. And that was the head, the creator God of the Canaanite pantheon. 
And we have that in our Bible because El is actually Elohim in the first chapter of Genesis. So I tell you that because El and Allah are the same God, pretty much. They're both creator gods. They're both overseeing. It's just a different name for the same God. So the thing you need to know about Allah, and this is really, really critical for this, is that of all those 360 gods in the Kaaba, Allah was the only one that didn't have physical representation. It didn't have an image, it didn't have an artifact, nothing like that, right? So here's what Muhammad says to the people. He teaches them two basic things. The first thing that he teaches is he says, look, don't worry about those 359 other gods. They, they aren't real anyway, so don't bother worshiping them. The one God you focus on is Allah. And that's why the first pillar of Islam is there is no God but Allah. Or if you read it in Arabic, there is no God but God. The second thing he says is that because there is no physical representation of God in that cube, in the sanctuary of the Kaaba, then that means you don't have to come to the Kaaba to worship Allah. That's kind of a tongue twister, isn't it? Okay, you don't have to come to the Kaaba to worship Allah. You can worship Allah anywhere. In this way, what the Prophet Muhammad does is he basically is saying, look, God is present everywhere. God is in everything. And so you don't need to come to the centralized location to worship God. You can worship God here in Arlington Heights just as well as you can worship God in Mecca. It doesn't matter as much. And so what he does is he ends up decentralizing the worship of God. And this decentralization, it just catches on like wildfire. People are like, oh my God, I don't have to come to these guys and pay them money. I don't have to travel all the way here to do this. This is great. And this is why Islam became the second most dominant religion in the world. You there with me so far? Okay. So here's the interesting thing about this though. Muhammad's not the first guy to do this. In fact, Jesus did it a long time ago, and we find this in the Bible. So we read today, you heard Judy read from 1 Kings, right? Now, 1 Kings, what this is talking about is when Solomon dedicates the temple in Jerusalem. Why does he do this? What, let me give you a little bit of background, a little bit of history. I know history, I never do that, right? So let me just give you a little bit of history. So this happens, the scripture that we have from 1 Kings, we think it happens sometime around, we don't know, like 950 BC, somewhere in there. And the reason why is because there was no centralized place for the Jewish people to worship God. So Solomon builds the temple so that there can be this centralized location, and he dedicates it. And this is what he says. So the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Now think about that for a second. What does that sound like to you? What did I just spend the last 15 minutes talking about? I talked about the Kaaba, right? And the Kaaba was the centralized place where you had to go. Same idea right here. You want to worship the God of the Jews? You got to come to Jerusalem. You got to go to the temple. You got to go in there and offer your sacrifices. Now here's the thing about Solomon's temple. It was eventually destroyed. It was leveled to the ground. And what that did was, when it was leveled, all the Jews, they scattered all the way throughout Arabia. They scattered throughout the Mediterranean. And so what happens is, a couple hundred years later, they rebuild the temple. Now, this is what that temple probably would have looked like. And this is what the temple would have looked like close to when Jesus was alive. But it's rebuilt. And so what happens is, the Jews, 
they would come from all over the world to go to this temple in order to worship God. The reason why they would do this is because if you read in the Old Testament, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, the way, what you have to do is you have to bring a sacrifice, an animal, and you place it on an altar, and a priest will get up there and slaughter that animal, will kill it, and then you're all good with God. You're good to go, right? You can just leave. Now, that's what they believed. That's how they thought, right? So what happens is they have the temple, and you're, let's just assume for a second, you're a Jew. You don't live near Jerusalem. So what do you have to do? You have to travel there, right? And usually you travel there once a year, usually during the Passover. So you travel there and you want to offer a sacrifice. But can you bring a sacrifice with you if you're traveling a long way? No, you can't do that. So you're going to have to buy it when you get there. So what happened is this whole industry cropped up. Now, do you see there the temple courtyard? So you see the big temple, right? Now, if you come out into the courtyard, into that area, that is where they would sell all the sacrifices. So you come in, you exchange your money, and you could buy your sacrifice and go in. Now, what's interesting, and this will sound a little familiar, is that every time you bought a sacrifice, a little cut of that money went to the priests who ran the temple. Does this sound familiar to you? Okay, it should, right? So, if you were wealthy, no big deal. You go there, you buy your, your animal, you go and you give your sacrifice. But if you were poor, you had to travel all the way there. It was this huge expense. And then you're paying top dollar for a sacrifice. Now, do you remember, have you ever heard of a little thing called Palm Sunday? Have you ever heard of that before? Okay. Palm Sunday, which we will celebrate the first week in April. Do you know what Palm Sunday is all about? Palm Sunday is when Jesus goes into that courtyard and he overturns the tables of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrifice. And the reason why is because, like Muhammad, he is upset that the worship of God is now controlled by the small group of people, and they're profiting off of it, and he wants to see that change. And this is why the Holy Spirit is actually such an important part of our religion. Last week I talked about Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. And we read this morning, you heard me read from the book of Acts, this very peculiar story, right? What happens is Jesus dies, he's resurrected, and the, the disciples, where are they sitting? They're sitting up in this upper room, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes in, takes them over, and they start speaking in all these different languages, foreign languages that they don't know. So what is the purpose of this story? The purpose of this story is twofold. On the one hand, there's a surface meaning, right? that basically the Holy Spirit is like an ancient version of Google Translate. Do you know what I'm talking about? So it's like, you ever done that where you're talking to your phone and then you're talking to somebody you don't know, they don't know the language, you can have it translate for it? If you don't know it, look it up. It's a really good feature. It's super great. Or you can use the Holy Spirit. Either one will get you there, okay? So the idea is, is that it helps them speak in other languages. But on the other hand, this has a much deeper meaning behind it. And what this story is trying to convey is that you don't have to worship God in the temple anymore. Because this story, where does it take place? It takes place in Jerusalem, right? And of course, what's in Jerusalem? The, the temple. And the temple, if you wanted to worship God, you had to go to that temple. If you want to get to the God of Jews, you've got to go there. So the whole point of this story in Acts is to show us that's no longer necessary. It doesn't matter what country you come from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. With the Holy Spirit, you can carry God wherever you want to go. God is no longer geographically locked into a singular location because you can carry God in your heart. And so 
in the same way that Muhammad was trying to reform the Kaaba by saying, hey, you don't need to come here to worship Allah, Jesus was trying to do the same thing by saying, you can worship God now anywhere. And so that is how Jesus and the prophet Muhammad are linked together. Yes? All right. All right, I'm done. That's good enough, right? <laughs> now, what's interesting is both of these men, after they start their movements, something interesting happens. Both of their movements become religions. They become institutionalized. Islam becomes institutionalized, Christianity does. And we lose touch with the messages that they were putting out there originally because the leaders who take over, they get greedy. And I'll give you an example of this from Christianity. The Vatican in Rome. So if you're Catholic, there is no holier place on the earth than the Vatican in Rome. True? All right, this is St. Peter's Basilica. It's beautiful, is it not? I mean, it is gorgeous. This is also from the movie Samsara as well. And for them, you go to the Vatican, you might as well be right next to heaven. I mean, it's just like right there, right? And it's understandable because it is such a beautiful place. But doesn't it go exactly against the entire purpose of what Jesus was trying to achieve? Which is the idea that you can worship God in the wastelands of Antarctica as much as you can at St. Peter's Basilica. Which brings me to the whole point of my sermon. Which is that this idea that God is more present in some places versus others is actually just a matter of perspective. For many people, and I'm sure many of you in here, you feel that God is more present in this building than when you're at home. But that's not necessarily a reality. That's just a feeling. And that perspective, that feeling, can actually lead to have really detrimental effects on our faith. So let me explain to you what I mean by this. If you believe that God is more present in this place, this is a beautiful building, by the way. Like, it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It's a wonderful place. But if you feel that God is more present here than outside in the world, then what that means is that when you are outside of here, it's going to be much harder for you to be a Christian. I remember when I was a kid, my mom would drag me to church, right? Much like you guys are trying to do with your kids as much as you can, right? You drag them to church, you bring them in, and my mom, she was like, you better be good because God's watching you. And I was like, oh man, God can like see me in here. This is bad, right? And so, and so my mom, like, so she, God could see me in the church and then we'd leave, right? And we'd leave. And when I got outside of the walls of the church, all of a sudden I'd be like, oh, God can't see me as well. So I can get away with a lot more, right? Because it's in here that actually this is where God can see us the best, right? But again, this is perception. This is not reality. The truth is, what we believe to be true as Christians is that God is all around us. God is everywhere. And there's no place that you can go where God is not present. And when you can grasp this idea, then it totally changes the way that you feel God's presence in the world. So for many of us, because we feel that God is more present right here than outside, God's missing out on a whole lot of stuff that we're going through. So as an example, you know, do you think God is there when you have your first kiss? Of course, God's there when you have your first kiss. How about your first child? Is God present for that? Yeah. Or, or how about when you get that first promotion? Is God there for that? Of course. God is there for all the good things that you experience in your life. What about the bad? What about 
when you get a little too drunk, you have a little too much to drink, and you say things you wish you hadn't said to the people around you, is God there for that? Yeah. How about when you're crying through the tears of a divorce? Is God there for that? Yeah. How about when you're watching somebody who you love dearly pass away? Is God there for that? Absolutely. You see, God is everywhere, and God is in everything. And if you have the eyes to be able to see that, then it completely changes everything about the way you walk through your life because you know that you're never walking alone. God is there with you. Now, I have talked about this idea for the last four sermons. The last four sermons, I've talked about this idea that God is present with us no matter what we do. Why do I keep coming back to it? I keep coming back to it because it's very easy for me to sit here and say, God is everywhere and in everything. And you guys say, yeah, that sounds good to me, Alex. And then you leave and nothing changes, right? Because you can agree with that idea and it means very little actually in your own life. But if you really want that to have an impact on you, then what that means is you have to start seeing the world in a different way. You have to go through a shift in perspective in your life. Do you know why we tend to feel God's presence more in this room than we do out there? The reason why is because this place forces you to slow down. You see all this stuff that we do in here? It's called the liturgy. Do you know why we do all this stuff? We do it because we want you to slow down and pay attention and not just rush through things. The reason why you feel God's presence more is because you are present more now than you are in your normal life. What happens when you leave here? You're like, okay, we're going to go get lunch. Got to go, 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 right? We're going to go home. We got things we got to do. I got to do laundry. I got to get ready. Got to go to the grocery store, right? All those things. And you're rushing. And because you're rushing and you're moving so quickly, you lose touch with God's presence that is right there. God is no more present in this place than outside of these doors. The difference is your presence of mind to see that. And this is so important because when you're able to see God out there, then it's not just feeling God's presence when things are going well, but it is also feeling God's presence more importantly when you're in the depths of darkness in your life. And this is a problem that I see all the time. People come to me when they're going through really challenging things and they'll say, I feel like God's abandoned me. And I don't believe that to be true. I will still comfort them, but the fact is, God's right there with you. God's in the middle of it. The difference is, is that you don't have the ability to see God there because you're hurting so badly, and you haven't trained yourself to see God out in the world. So you come here looking for solace, which is fine, but God is also there with you, and that makes a big difference to see God when you're struggling in that way. Because I can tell you right now, the darkest moments of my life, when life has brought me to my knees, knowing that God is next to me is very, very different than thinking that God exists right in this place only. That is how I have gotten through those dark times in my life, knowing that God walks next to me. And so my prayer for you this morning is that if you don't already feel it to be true, that you would achieve this shift in your own perspective, that you would be able to walk out from here today and feel God's presence in the exact same way that you feel God right here and right now. Because the truth is that once we can experience God in the world beyond these walls, that's when we're able to walk as Jesus intended us to walk. We can see God in everyone and in everything, and that is how we become a blessing to others, and it's how we can be God's 
hands and feet in the world to the people who need it most. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.